A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. With a massive move to distributed data architecture, it's essential to have access to all of your data wherever it is. A data mesh emphasizes domain-driven data ownership, data as a product, self-service infrastructure, and federated computational governance, giving you faster time to value without needing to transport your data. Starburst allows you to achieve this distributed architecture by allowing you to run SQL queries across distributed data that connect sources, regions, and clouds. For more information on how your team can benefit from a data mesh strategy, check out our data mesh resource center on our website. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Chris Ricomini, a software engineer, author, and investor. I'd asked Chris to be on about, because he had written an article about a DevOps angle when thinking about data mesh, and it was called, like, what the heck is data mesh? Chris was also leading the infrastructure team at WePay when they embarked on a data mesh journey. So he's had some perspective about how, how to think about this. Like a number of people and organizations that have come on the podcast at WePay, Chris was pursuing the general goals of Data Mesh and was applying some of the approaches as well, but it was not nearly as cohesive as Jamak had laid has laid things out. So he was trying to go down this path and then you know stumbled across the article and was like, oh, okay, here's a cohesive way of approaching this. Their initial setup before kind of heading down this route was two teams really managing the pipeline transformation infrastructure. Chris's team was mostly handling the extracting and loading, and then there was a team of analytics engineers at kind of the end of the process handling the transformations. So again, Chris handled the E and L, and the other team handled the T. The transformation team saw a major increase in demand and quickly became overloaded they became a bottleneck. Chris's team also started to get a bit overloaded as well. So that's why they started to look at kind of transitioning more towards data mesh specifically. One way the team started to address the bottlenecks was by decentralizing the pipelines. Teams could make a request 
for a pipeline to you know transform their data themselves so they could serve data and it would essentially get automatically set up for them we pay is in the financial services space so as part of those pipelines to prevent risk there were the ability for teams to mark their uh, sensitive slash PII columns. And, and the infrastructure team also put in some auto detection capabilities to make sure they didn't miss any of that those PII columns, again, to prevent that risk. WePay had created a, a CDR or canonical data representation that's pretty analogous to a data product in data mesh. Chris really liked uh, WePay's use of the embedded analytics engineer into the domains to help create those those CDRs. This has been a topic up for debate, and it seems like for fast-growing companies, one that are called startups but really aren't anymore startups, are the ones that that it might make a lot of sense in. Flexport has done the same, but I would look at somebody like Nav who had put... Um, analytics engineers into their domains. And those people were simply working alongside, not as part of the team. So it is an interesting thing to, to think about and choose uh, what's going to work for your company. One key innovation for WePay was tooling to enable safe application schema evolution. This has been one of the things I've talked about a lot, that we don't have good tooling to enable safe application schemas evolution. So I think you should really listen for that aspect alone. I think there's a lot in this episode, but I think that specifically was really good. They'd look for things like dropped columns and, you know, more data or more comprehensive data contract checking mechanisms. They had two layers that they were working on with this. It allowed the developers to test their changes that they were going to make pre-commit. You know, 80 to 90% of the data breakages that were detected were things that developers had no idea would cause an issue and they reverted those changes. Now, typically dropping a column or changing a column name, those types of things that constantly break data but aren't necessary to the actual schema evolution or anything like that. That remaining 10 to 20% of the time, the developers still wanted to go through with the changes and that kicked off negotiations with the data consumers. That kind of forced conversation was very helpful for a, a lot of reasons around developing that relationship between the producers and the consumers and figuring out what was okay to do and what wasn't. Chris talked about three data sharing patterns and their strengths and weaknesses. One is doing the transformations within the database itself, where the application schema is also stored. This makes data versioning very difficult, however. The outbox pattern, which Abby at Flexport also covered, is more of a traditional ETL pattern. And then there is the ELT pattern where you transform data upon landing it in a data warehouse or data lake. On the question of should you try to get everyone to use your self-serve platform, all the domains that are producing data, should they all use your, your platform? Chris talked about standardizing around technology and, and creating a standardized stack but also allowing teams to roll their own if they wanted. But they were super clear with those teams that were rolling their own. They weren't going to support the tech. Even if it was okay to use it, the data infrastructure team wasn't going to support everything that everybody wanted. We discussed how both of us see a major need for an API gateway concept for data. 
currently everything around versioning and managing documentation, you know, auto documentation and otherwise, all of that metadata management, just a lot of this information, it's just way too manual and, and high friction. We really do need people to start moving on this one as, as a community, honestly, because we're, everybody has to reinvent the wheel and getting to a place where we can have that low friction around versioning and things like that is really, really crucial. Chris talked about taking the learning from DevOps and applying them to data mesh. In general, we need to do that from many disciplines, but DevOps is one of those that's really, really crucial to really learn from what they've done, the mistakes and and the good things that the DevOps community has done and apply them here. Uh, One good kind of practice to look at for Chris is, is the embedded SRE concept. So should you do the same with the data or an analytics engineer, as I discussed earlier? There is also a need for standards and replicable patterns and things like that. Um, At WePay, they launched a data review committee similar to a design review committee that helped them to come up with standard data models and other standards as well because they got to see what everyone was doing and then create the standards to reduce that friction and, and ensure interoperability and things like that. We talked about the concept of Sherpas, not gatekeepers. Build out your review functions as councils to guide and disseminate knowledge, right? The team's role from that council perspective should be about assisting where they can, being a trusted partner, not that that you must, you know, comply with these things and they've got their commandments and things like that. It's that this is a partnership model. And what we pay saw was that as people went through more and more of the reviews, they they saw that there was less of a need for the reviews as people learned what good uh, slash best practices were. You know, it really did disseminate that knowledge. Lastly, Chris wrapped up on a point many others have made, including uh, Xavi, uh, you know, Xavier Gumaro Rigol, about the cost of making a mistake. You need to make it as low as possible. Back processing data can be very costly in, in compute, but also in the time to kind of fix that mistake and change kind of what you've done. So there's a lot of, of really good things to learn from this one, and, and I think you'll enjoy it as well. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very excited for this episode here today. I've got Chris Riccamini, who's a software engineer, author, and investor. And the reason I reached out to Chris was um, he had posted uh, an article quite a while back. I think it was like August or, or, or so of last year about kind of a DevOps approach to data mesh and thinking about it from that perspective. And I think it was the first time I had really seen that. And I think it's really, really helpful when talking to people that are coming from kind of that microservice DevOps background, whether they're on the 
software engineering side or the um, kind of data engineering side, I think it's really, really helpful perspective. So um, excited to kind of dig into that a little bit more and, and talk about kind of what's happened there as well as uh, he was recently at WePay and, and was helping to lead their journey on uh, what they're doing with Data Mesh as well. So very excited for today's episode, and I think people will get a lot out of it. Uh, Chris, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an intro to your background, and then we can kind of jump in, which, whichever one you want to start with on the DevOps or the the, the journey side, which whichever one's better. But would love to get people to, to understand how you're a rock star and all that fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um, yeah, so... I think my background started um, about 15 years ago in industry uh, at PayPal, and I did initially more data science stuff, um, so data visualization and some machine learning uh, at PayPal and then LinkedIn. And at LinkedIn, I made the transition from data science to, uh, I think, what you would now call like data infrastructure, data engineering, so somewhere uh, between those two worlds. Spent a lot of time with Hadoop. Uh, and then stream processing, obviously, that was a big thing at LinkedIn with Kafka. Um, and I worked on Apache Samza, which is an open source project uh, that came out of LinkedIn. Um, and then about uh, six or seven years ago, I transitioned over to WePay, which is a payments company that was acquired by JP Morgan Chase. Um, and at WePay, my bulk, bulk of my time was spent uh, running the data infrastructure and engineering team there, which again was kind of a hybrid between you know, traditional data engineering, data pipeline stuff, and uh, working on more uh, you know, backend data infrastructure uh, systems. Um, so that's a bit of a background uh, about my professional career. Um, I think you, you mentioned sort of from a starting point, uh, I think it would make a good sense to talk about sort of the data mesh journey at WePay. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think we kind of came across the idea or the concepts of data mesh before data mesh ex existed, but they were not coherent. Uh, <laughs> so we were sort of seeing uh, some of the various strands of data mesh at WePay. Um, you know, data as a product uh, and then federation and stuff like that, namely. Um, and what I mean by federation is essentially decentralizing uh, the data pipeline, empowering teams to um, manage their own pipelines and their own data products and their own schemas. So I think a good place to start is just structurally looking at how the teams were set up at WePay, because I think it informs kind of the problems we were trying to solve. So my team, the data engineering team, was um, really focused on the data extraction and loading. So if you think about a traditional ELT pipeline or ETL pipeline, um, we ran an ELT pipe at WePay. So we were extracting data from upstream OLTP systems, namely MySQL, and loading them into a downstream uh, data warehouse, namely BigQuery. Um, and my team was not particularly uh, focused on the T, the transformation. So all we were really focusing on was getting data out of the upstream DBs and getting them into uh, BigQuery. There was a separate team, which now I think you would call analytics engineers. And uh, they were focused on the T and really understanding the data, transforming it to be useful to um, the various teams. Uh, and so what we discovered was 
they only, because they were a centralized team, they were not really embedded. There was essentially uh, one team of, you know, maybe six, seven, eight people. Uh, they were kind of acting as consultants with the various other teams. They only had so much bandwidth to build the data models. And so what we ended up with was my team extracting and loading essentially all the data that getting into BigQuery and then a, a relatively small subset of the data actually being transformed into like uh, a, a, what, what would be considered sort of a data producty kind of thing with uh, or, or just any any uh, sort of data mark style uh, schema. Right. Um, and so, of course, other teams wanted the data uh, to be transformed. Other product managers wanted the data to be transformed for their stuff. And so there's this long queue. Um, so there was a there was a bottleneck at the transformation layer. There was also a bottleneck at the extract and load layer. So so again, my data engineering team was sort of centrally managing all the pipes. So anytime someone wanted a new uh, chunk of data loaded in, uh, they would have to open a ticket with us and we'd have to like go and update some uh, file that tracked all the pipelines and then like run some, you know, Terraform or Kafka Connect thing to, to get it all loaded. It was like relatively low value work. It was essentially just like copying and pasting and punching stuff in. Um, <laughs> But we had to do it be primarily be this way, primarily because of compliance and security concerns. You know, we're dealing with PII, um, you know, very sensitive information. Um, and so allowing people to just willy-nilly set up uh, data pipelines and load them into the BigQuery uh, and, and not necessarily control who can see them is not a great idea, right? So this is sort of the, the environment under which we started to, to think about some of these data mesh concepts. Um, there's a third team that I want to call out, which was our reporting team, which is part of our payments team. And their job was to uh, essentially really deeply understand the payments data and do what's called reconciliation between our books and JP Morgan Chase's books. So we see our transactions coming in. JP Morgan sees the transactions coming in on their end. And we have to reconcile and make sure our data matches their data. And so specifically with the payments data, there was this third team that was hyper-focused on, um, you know, credit card and bank transactions, um, which sounds, might sound like uh, relatively trivial because there's only a couple data models in there, but actually credit card and bank data is extraordinarily complex and um, oftentimes a little bit lossy when it comes to granularity and stuff. So it becomes very, very hard if you don't understand all the nuances of the data and the semantics to actually do these correlations. So there, there was a whole, there's this third team, the reporting and reconciliation team that was doing a lot uh, specifically with payments and transactions. So um, we, we started doing, I think, three things simultaneously. Um, one of them was on the data engineering team, team trying to decentralize the data pipeline. So addressing this, this bottleneck uh, where the engineers on my team were kind of standing away. And the way, that, as I mentioned, because of the security and compliance concerns, the way that we started looking at this was allowing and building a tool where other teams could come and request data pipelines and automating the data pipeline um, you know, deployment so that the pipe was automatically set up when they requested it, but um, doing two other things. One was requiring that the upstream DBs start to tag their PII columns. So if you, if you think of a MySQL database, there might be a column you know, email or a column name or a column, uh, I don't know, IP address. Um, 
So in the SQL uh, DDL stuff, uh, the engineers were not required, but but asked to tag their columns. And that's, that's obviously not going to be 100% accurate. So on the flip side, we started leveraging uh, a DLP solution that Google Cloud provides that detects, uh, that can detect various PII. And so on the back end, what we would do is we would look at the tags for a given column, and then we would um, detect, you know, any PII that did not, uh, that was not properly tagged. Um, so for example, if there was a, a column with emails in it, but email had not been tagged and the DLP job detected emails, you know, we would get an alert. And so we started automating the actual security and compliance detection here, um, which, which unlocked the ability for us to, uh, you know, fully automate the pipeline without humans having to be in the loop. Um, the, a second, a second thing that we did, uh, when it comes to sort of the data product side of the house is we started to define what we called a CDR, a canonical data representation, <laughs> which really is a, is a data product, right? Um, except we didn't know that term at the time. And the, what, what happened was the reporting and reconciliation team recognized that the the schemas and the data that they were working with for payments um, to do the reconciliation with JP Morgan Chase was actually generally useful across the entire org. And so they, what they started doing was taking the internal uh, payment and bank uh, transaction information, data models, uh, and transforming them into something that was much more consumable for the org writ large. And essentially what they were building was a data product for uh, payments and banking transactions. And they were doing that in such a way that it was not just going to be visible in the data warehouse, but was going to be visible in the, uh, at the Kafka layer, in the streaming layer. Um, so users, whether it's an application engineer, uh, you know, in some ML function or an application engineer uh, in a notifications team or whatever, could all kind of agree on and consume this, this, standardized format that was guaranteeing some level of consistency across the schemas. The other part of that story is um, in order for the CDR to be built, we had to um, allow the application engineers that were dealing with the, the upstream information. So the, the, the underlying data um, to evolve their schemas in a compatible way and to detect when their schemas were evolving in an incompatible way, because what happens uh, when we are consuming data, which we were doing in a CDC fashion, which means we're essentially streaming data from MySQL into Kafka. Uh, and then from there, we were building these data products on top of it. Um, the application engineers dealing with MySQL aren't really thinking about the downstream stuff. They're just thinking about their database schema and would often introduce backwards incompatible changes. And what I mean by that is essentially a change that uh, breaks the downstream users' assumptions about the data. So for example, if I have a required column in my database and there's some downstream user, because it's required, they're going to assume that that, that column is always going to be there. Now in the database, you could introduce a, a DDL that like drops that column because you no longer need it for whatever reason. But that actually breaks the downstream consumer's assumptions. So what we introduced um, was a, a data combat compatibility checker in the CI layer so that the application engineers managing the schemas would, would be notified when they were breaking uh, their schema compatibility. So there's sort of like two levels of schema compatibility going on here. If you, if you visualize the pipeline, there's 
from the initial MySQL database into the Kafka data pipeline. And that's just making sure that the, 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 the columns don't disappear for the most part. And then there's a second layer, which is um, the, the transformation for the data products where this, this CDR, as we were calling it, or the, the uh, data product uh, has to kind of maintain compatibility as the reporting and reconciliation evolves their data product schema. Um, so those were sort of the two schema management things that we did, um, which really, I think, helped uh, for the data product uh, work that we were doing. Um, I'm going to pause there. <laughs> could, could we dig into that? Because this is something that a lot of people have been really trying to figure out how to do. Yeah. Of how can I evolve my application schema, especially like... I don't know when you're talking about it at the the CI layer, is that at the testing phase or is that at the deployment phase? Because I think of that as being more deployment phase of, nope, I'm not going to let you deploy. Uh, you broke this versus at the testing phase of going like, hey, I'm trying to do this. And and here's, you know, that there's that, that ability to, um, because what, a big, big challenge around data mesh with, or what, why data has been broken constantly is application engineers don't know what's being used and why. And so they'll make a change and it'll break things. And they had no idea. They, it's not that they don't care. It's that they have literally no ability to care because otherwise they can't evolve the application schema because they can't figure out what's going on. So how did you, how, how did it work? And in, in a dream scenario, how would it work? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so I think that's a fantastic question. So I think a few things jumped to mind. So um, first off, the way that we actually implemented this was um, when you would submit a pull request um, to evolve your schema, we were managing the schemas through, um, you know, a variety of DB migration tools. So if the common ones are like Flyway, Liquibase, you know, SQL Alchemy, these kind of tools. So we had a standardized one. Uh, for the most part, we were using Liquibase, um, which meant we had a standard way to kind of read and understand the DDL changes that were coming in on a pull request. And what we would do is essentially spin up a Docker image, uh, run the uh, migration up to the point of the pull request, uh, but not including the pull request. And then we would look at the schema, then we would run the pull, requ the pull request migration, and then we just compare those two schemas. And if they looked incompatible, the CI uh, request it would essentially fail or, or, or alert you that, uh, you know, that the test didn't pass. Um, so this is actually pre-commit. And to your second point, um, the, you're 100% correct that the engineers, for the most part, just weren't aware, right? And so what we found was that, you know, some, maybe 80 to 90% of the time, the engineers, uh, when, when the PR would fail, they'd be like, oh, I had no idea that this was a, this was a, you know, a problem. And so they would kind of like either ask the DBA or, or ask the data engineering team, like, Hey, what, is, what's going on here? And, and, and we kind of explained to them, you know, well, it, so there was some socializing, like, you know, this is a backwards incompatible change. And, you know, it just so happens that the data science team really depends on this column you're trying to drop to like do some, you know, fraud modeling or whatever. And they go, Oh, okay. Well maybe we shouldn't drop this column. There, there, the reason I don't say hundred percent is there, there was a sort of 10 to 20%, um, scenario where the engineers uh you know were aware and and were either like deliberately trying to drop it anyway because of reason xyz maybe it's a performance issue or you know the index is too big and they want to get rid of this column or whatever it is 
um, or, you know, something upstream of them got changed. So, right, we depend on a lot of vendors. Sometimes those vendors evolve their schemas. In some cases, they delete their data. And so, like, the data may legitimately just not be there. And so then they need to, you know, uh, do something. But I, I think even in those scenarios, what it did was force us to have the conversation, make the downstream teams aware, kind of figure out, like, how do we, how do we deal with this? And so I think the third part that you mentioned is, like, well, uh, sort of the dream scenario of how this would work. Um, and so I think this kind of gets to a much older blog post that I wrote, uh, which sort of aggressively declares, I think the title is like change data capture breaks database encapsulation. And essentially the way that we have it set up right now is there is no transformation layer between the app engineers DB schema and what's getting loaded into Kafka and the downstream systems, uh, because we are doing sort of an ELT style, uh, uh approach. So in a case where there is an incompatible change that needs to be made, we're, we're kind of, you know, in, in a bad spot. Um, I think there's a number of ways to approach this. So one of the ways that's kind of been floating around for a little while now is, is uh, an out, what's called the outbox pattern, uh, which Gunnar Morling has done some good writing on. He's uh, one of the, DB, he's the Debezium kind of project lead. Um, and he's got a couple of uh, blog posts on it, but essentially what it is, is um, not, loading the data directly from the DB, but doing an internal transformation in the DB. So the data that you load is sort of a, a derived table in the database rather than the primary table. And that allows you to build some transformation into, uh, into the um, schema before it gets loaded into the downstream, uh, you know, Kafka or whatever it is. Now, that works for some time, but not always. There's again, there's some cases where there is no transformation possible that will, that will manage the um, the compatibility. Like if the data is just gone, you know, you could fill in blanks, but that's effectively still a, a backwards incompatible change. Um, the second approach that I kind of personally favor is um, moving that transformation layer out of the database, that outbox pattern out of the database, and into the streaming layer. Um, so if you look at some of these more, uh, recent startups like decodable or Maroxa, um, or even some of the stuff being done with KSQL with Kafka, the idea here is you, you, you directly load the data from, uh, your upstream DB into Kafka or, you know, Red Panda or whatever it is, the streaming system, um, or even the directly into the data warehouse, but you treat that data set as private. And then you do transformations into a agreed upon uh, schema that you you then expose as public. So mapping this back to sort of the CDR example that I gave earlier with our reporting team, the idea would be that the internal payments and banking information uh, or transactions would not be uh, publicly consumable by any of the uh, you know application engineering teams or data warehouse or whatever. It would only be consumable essentially by the CDR team who would read that data, transform it and expose it as a publicly available um, uh, data product. And so I think that kind of gives you the opportunity to do the transformation at the streaming layer rather than in, in the, the data, the database. Um, and, and, and I think that's more in line with at least what Jamak was talking about initially with about data products is that all the transformation should happen inside the data product so that you have that transformation is controlled in code and you're able to to understand not 
okay, I'm reliant on this upstream of of this stuff that the, or I'm reliant on that pipeline being the first class concern versus I get the data in and then however the team wants to transform it, they've got that transformation capability and then they serve out their um, their transformed data yep. in the format that they want. Now that can cause all sorts of different other concerns, especially around um, cost. If you're doing the same transforms for for five, ten different data products, Tony Bear um, made this point in one of his uh, blog posts on ZDNet that I think was really good. But yeah, I mean, I, I this I think is more in line with what. Um, Jamac at least initially believed is is the right way to do data products, but the outbox pattern. Um, obviously, Asylum in his episode talked about that they're doing that a lot with with, and that it's working well for them. So I do think yeah. both can be usable, but it's also good to kind of know that both approaches exist and both have their strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, and I, there's actually a third approach here, which I think is. Um, moving that T all the way into the data warehouse, right? Which is sort of, I think, historically what we've done. And so if you think about the spectrum of you taking the data from the DB, loading it into a, a streaming pipe, and then from the streaming pipe, loading it into the data warehouse, this is sort of the classic data integration, log-based uh, service bus story. Um, you could do the transformation in the data warehouse as well, which is, you know, I think by and large, what the majority of people are doing these days with a classic ELT pipe. Um, to your point, you can put the, the transformation at any one of these layers. You can put it at the DB, at the streaming location, or at the data warehouse. I think uh, Jamak is, I believe, fairly agnostic and thinking about this more uh, at the logical level and, and just making the claim that you need, you know, there should be a data product and there should be transformations being built. Um, however, I think. Uh, when you look practically at like the trade-offs between these approaches, uh, it feels to me like the right place to locate them is the middle layer, the streaming layer, um, which <laughs> maybe is sort of a, a throwback to the old ETL style <laughs> uh, of architecture. Um, but I think the, the thing that's really missing is not so much the transformation layer itself. Like we have a bunch of streaming tools at our disposal. We have, you know, KSQL and Samza and some of these much older tools, much older, some of these older tools like Spark streaming and, uh, you know, Flink and stuff. Um, we also have more more recent tools. I mentioned Decodable and, and Maroxa. I think there's Materialize as well, right? Um, so the, the ability to write SQL to do streaming transformation exists, but what doesn't exist that you kind of really need with the data product is all the stuff that you kind of have in a microservice uh, environment around um, really robust ways to describe versioning and compatibility and uh, all the tools like Postman and those kind of tools. So when we when we have our application engineers or even our analytics engineers and we say, okay, you're, you're now, it's your job to build the data product uh, or you need to maintain compatibility and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're making an incompatible change. They say, okay, well, here's how I would transform it. Right now, what we do is just throw them into the deep end with like, okay, well, here, here's your here's KSQL or, you know, here's some SQL, go write some SQL. What we really need is something um, much more, uh, I think, robust where we can have versioned, you know, either semantic versioning or something like that, uh, versioning for a data product, documentation for the data product so that you get something that looks a lot more like 
what you would get if you were interacting with a RESTful web service. And we don't have any of that right now, right? So if, I, if I'm publishing a data product, um, the, the documentation is like pretty limited in terms of what I can expose by default. If I, if I want to build something, I have to go and like do my, roll my own thing. What I would personally love to see is um, something that looks more like an API gateway uh, where you could define your public facing data products, semantic versions for the schemas, documentation around uh, the, you know, the schemas that are published, and then uh, tooling to help you both write the SQL and manage the migrations, right? So there may be cases, just like with a microservice, where you might want to serve V1 and V2 of your API simultaneously as you're transitioning people over to V2. Like, all that can be done, but it's all manual right now. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, integrated tooling that will help with that. So if I were fast forwarding, like, or if I had a dream, that would be my dream. My hypothesis is that it's going to take like five to 10 years for us to get there because I think we're, we're still pretty far away from being able to, uh, to give somebody that tool. And I, I, I don't, I think we have all the building blocks. I just think people are kind of working their way towards the, the end state. Yeah, I, I think I've been pushing for that almost since kind of day one of the, the community in, in uh, February of last year, because I, I think there are a lot of people who, when I say data APIs are way different than APIs, they go, no, they're not. And it's like, no, they really are. The more that I talk to people, the more it's entirely different and that you think about versioning and that the API isn't just kind of the ones and zeros. It's, it also has to include that semantics and there's semantic drift. You don't have really drift in your API. There's semantic drift. And so managing that if the semantics have changed, that that's also a versioning change and that you can give people the, and and when you talk about building data APIs, there should be extensible models. There should be those kind of core blocks. And then you say, okay, you're going to to augment it in this way, but like so much that of where I find frustration with data mesh is that nobody's sharing their blueprints or their defaults or their anything. So everybody does have to do exactly what you said of everything is manual. Mm-hmm. Everything, you know, it's so uh, the example I constantly use is so tell me about yourself, right? That's an awful question. It's an awful prompt. And it's like, so serve some data to folks, right? Yeah. Like, what? I, I think the other half of that um, that we're kind of learning about now uh, is the sort of cultural and organizational aspect of this. And I, I, again, I, I really like the mapping back to the microservice and DevOps style of thing. So I think so far we've kind of been talking about the API microservice architectural approach, but there's a whole other pillar of this, which is the organizational uh, culture approach, which is more what I would say is, is kind of the DevOps pillar where, okay, imagine we had this tool and we gave, you know, we gave it to application engineers or we gave it to analytics engineers and they could now build data products. We would just end up with the equivalent of thousands and thousands of microservices, right? And it would just be a mess, which is exactly what we saw with microservices. And then we had to kind of like rein things in and start to define like, well, here's, here are standards. Here's how things would work. You know, is there like a review committee? Um, how are we going to agree on standard data models? Um, and so I think to your, to your point around like, well, expose the data, like simply having this tool is not enough. 
I think we right. also need to kind of agree on, you know, are there analytics, who, who, who owns the data products? Is it the application engineer? Is it some an analytics engineer, which in my view is kind of akin to maybe like an SRE, are they embedded or are they centralized? And so, again, I think we can learn a ton about what we did with DevOps, where, you know, there's probably some centralized team that's providing uh, the tooling. This probably is what you would call a data engineering team. And then there were probably some embedded, uh, uh, you know, SREs, you know, colon, colon, uh, analytics engineers, where there's probably some analytics engineers that are paired up with the teams that understand their data and are building data products. Um, and, you know, maybe it's a matrix organization, the way that you would do with an SRE that has embedded SRE uh, engineers. So I think, I think the good news is we've seen this pattern before. We've just spent the last, you know, 10, 20 years with microservices and DevOps kind of figure, muddling our way through this. So hopefully we can kind of fast forward a little bit and apply those same lessons learned. Um, but I, I totally agree with you on the, um, you know, everyone trying to figure out how to do this simultaneously uh, problem. I, I just hope that we can learn from the, the DevOps learnings that we've had. Yeah, I, I think that that concept of, and, and I didn't know that this is only a U.S. concept, but prior art is, is a legal concept in the U.S. of something that has already been created and that you can kind of base things off of, right? And DevOps and microservices and all of this has a lot of prior art that should be applied to data mesh. You know, Jamak talks about this in a lot of her early stuff and her early presentations, but it's kind of lost in, in a lot of uh, of, of people because it might not be written in everything that she, she puts out or anything like that. But it is very, very crucial to look at where these friction points are because, again, if, if everybody it is it can't be a wild west if everybody has to do all of their own things and that you want to provide those sensible blueprints. I, I think back to this model that Etsy had forever ago. Um, I remember reading about it in like 2010 or 2011, and they said, hey, for every service that you put out, here is our standard stack. If you want to go outside the standard stack, you support it. If it becomes standard stack in enough places, we'll move it to central support. So you can do what you want, but here's the stuff that's easily supported and that you provide easy path for things that aren't overly complicated because so much of data is not overly complicated. You can have those standard schemas, those standard blueprints and things, but how do you discover those? How do you share those? How do you, how do you actually create those standards? No, I, I'm not seeing the, the work out there around people sharing what their standards are or what they should leverage off of, pre, you know, there's all these schema standards and stuff from um, the healthcare and, you know, pharma and things spaces. Can we develop those? There's the cloud information model, which, you know, I think is, is okay. And, you know, I'll, sorry, it's it just, there's just a lot of this that just frustrates me because there is so much out there that people don't have to keep reinventing the wheel, but everyone is because no one's sharing. I discovered X and I'm leveraging X in Y way. And that, that there's just not that like, hey, I'm trying this thing. Is this a good idea? I'll give me some feedback and and I'll tell you what what's going on as we go forward. So it, have you found a good way to to develop those standards internally to to do that? Like what what were you what was happening at WePay? What what made it so you could move forward on this journey and you didn't get stuck? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. I think there's um 
kind of two things embedded in there. One is sort of the, the tech, like coming up with standard tech stack and the other one, which is, I would say more physical. And then there's a logical aspect, which is coming up with like standard schemas or data models or, or, or whatever. Um, I think on the tech stack approach with the data engineering team, um, we did kind of what you described and I found that it worked pretty well. I think normally data engineering teams or infrastructure teams in general, uh, treat new technology that's not part of their stack is like an ad adversarial and, and they either like, they either want to say, Hey, I own it. You know, that is ours. We will control it. Or, uh, you can't do that. We already have this other thing. So you must use our other thing. I think, um, we kind of took an in-between approach where we, uh, wanted to, we essentially said, okay, team, you know, say, for example, you know, a team wants to use KSQL at the time we were using Dataflow, So different streaming system. Uh, we say, okay, you guys are responsible for KSQL. We're going to be involved as uh, sort of advisors, and, but not implementing anything, just sort of getting advice, seeing what's going on, uh, making sure that you're not doing anything too crazy. And then if enough people pick up KSQL, you know, we'll roll that into our stack and, and kind of uh, shift ownership from, you know, team A into the data engineering org. Because the reality is that team A, you know, for example, the team that wanted to do KSQL for us was our risk team. They don't want to run KSQL for the entire org. That's like not their prerogative. They have a product manager like demanding that they do stuff or whatever, right? Um, but they also, they want to get stuff done and KSQL, you know, fits their needs. So it, as other people start to adopt KSQL, it, it naturally shifts, I think, for the most part toward uh, the data engineering team anyway. So on the tech adoption, tech stack adoption side of uh, the track. That's kind of how we approached it. And I think we did that relatively successfully. We had a number of examples, uh, KSQL, um, Cassandra was another one on um, the infrastructure side. Um, when it comes to the logical side of the track, the DB schema stuff, um, we, I won't say we nailed it, but, but the, the approach that we took was sort of a, um, I hate to use a word, but like data schema committee thing. So we essentially had a group of people who were responsible for um, helping teams and reviewing uh, schema and kind of spotting um, data models that we had already kind of standardized and coming up for those standards. So for example, you know, agreeing on how we would represent uh, a credit card or a bank account or an address or, or a phone number um, those things appear in enough places that having sort of a standard agreed upon thing is, is probably a good idea. And so this committee was sort of uh, responsible for doing that. And I think they, they borrowed from a number of places. So for a lot of the standard stuff, like phone numbers and addresses stuff, uh, you know, we were using gRPC and there's these, uh, I forget what they call it, but Google has with their, their protobuf stuff, they have a protobuf repo which is like extended data models for uh, stuff that they uh, frequently come across. So it had like phone and email and stuff in there. So we borrowed for a lot of those primitives from the Google repository itself. I think the next level up from that was like the primitives that were common at WePay um, that might not be common outside of WePay. And, you know, to your point, there are definitely, uh, you know, payment data model standards. There's like, medical data model standards. Uh, there's a lot of standards in industry. Um, the problem I have come across with those is they're, they're oftentimes like fairly complicated and bureaucratic and like, you know, maybe there's 15 different uh, companies involved in some uh, thing that's trying to design the, the data standard. Um, 
So I think in some cases we used those and in some cases we did not. Um, I think examples where we use them would be like, um, this is going back to WePay, or sorry, uh, LinkedIn rather. Uh, there's a standard, for example, uh, definition for title hierarchies or uh, company industries. And at LinkedIn, we were using those in some places. Um, but I would say the majority of the stuff that wasn't coming from sort of something like a, a Google gRPC style repository, we were just defining in, internally. And, and, you know, there was a team uh, that was part of the centralized DevOps team or that was uh, working with the uh, web service application engineers to kind of come up with these data models for the APIs. Cause again, you have the same problem with microservices where if you have eight different microservices, all exposing addresses and they're doing it in eight different ways that drives you crazy. Um, so it was fairly natural for them to help out with the, uh, data side as well. So, so the data engineering team and DevOps team kind of worked together on that. Um, when I say DevOps here, I, I, I'm talking about a data platform team within the DevOps org that was responsible for microservice schemas. Um, so that's the team that was really doing the logical uh, side of data schemas. And they would, you know, the application engineering teams would kind of work to, with them as they were building uh, uh, new microservices or new uh, data pipelines and stuff. Um, and it was kind of, we weren't doing any kind of CI enforcement the way I described earlier with compatibility checks. It was much more, uh, just responsibility of the application engineering teams kind of recognize they would need help. And again, if you have good actors that are, um, <laughs> not under a tremendous amount of treasure to just ship constantly, they will reach out. Uh, and, and so we had that, I think the other escape hatch that we had that was uh, more of a stick than a carrot was this concept of design reviews where if you were doing something large, you had to kind of get, you had to, you had to socialize it and like write up what you were doing, send it around. And there was sort of a non-blocking uh, rest period of a week or two where people had a chance to get feedback. And so part of that design review included DB, you know, data product, uh, API schemas, um, and that gave the, the platform team a chance to kind of look at it and weigh in and say like, hey, you're using, you know, something that looks like this data model. Maybe you should just take up the data model that already exists. A, a lot of what you, you pointed there has kind of been through lines through a, a lot of things, especially, you know, you're talking about those uh, design reviews. Um, obviously, Vasylam on, on his episode said that like every single change has to go through that uh, data model review design review type thing, because it's not just like the actual design, but it's the data model review. And, and you've got to be able to evolve your your data model schema as well, right? It's not just that you have to say your application model schema ch changes and your data model doesn't. Your data model has to evolve to um, kind of show what's going on with the evolution of the business <laughs> and the domain yeah. and things like that. But um, yeah. yeah, that that escape hatch I think is, is important and that cognitive load aspect as well is really important because um, there are a lot of people that are getting stuck when they're trying to say, Hey, application engineers, you also now have to do this versus mm -hmm. like, Hey, we're going to free you up with enough uh, time and resourcing and, you know, mental space, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not just, do you have the the bodies to do this? Do you have the 
um, tooling to do this, there's there's that mental space aspect too. And so um, I, I'm finding that to be kind of a common through line of the people who've moved forward successfully have that kind of empathy angle to, hey, oh, it's it's easy to be an application developer. No, it's not. No, it's, it's really not. They're, they've got yeah. too much on their plate already. So yeah, there's there's definitely like the uh, collapsing of skill set into like okay, the application engineer is now also DevOps and is you know an SRE and is now also an analytics engineer and is now also a front end engineer. It's like um, I think personally, I'm fairly bullish on sort of the embedded analytics engineering model, uh, where similar to SRE, you have you know uh, some ratio of maybe seven plus or minus two app engineers to analytics engineers embedded in the team. So maybe for every seven, I'm just sort of making these numbers up, but for every seven application engineers on a, on a team, you've got an SRE and an analytics engineer. And that analytics engineer can be empowered and, and much more familiar with sort of this, uh, the data models and compatibility and like the data pipeline and the data engineering stack and stuff and can kind of liaise between the two teams and, and help the application engineers out. Um, the second thing I would say is getting back to the committee stuff. Uh, the I don't think this is a static uh, approach that you will always have a committee and it will always work this way. Um, one of the patterns I saw at LinkedIn for a while was they had essentially a committee like this, but what we found was as time went on, the the committee was having to do a little bit less because the, the requirements and data models and the understanding uh, was growing across the org. So you can start to relax some of the constraints uh, that you have initially as the teams, the application engineers and analytics engineers start to internalize like what the rules are, what data models exist and stuff. Um, so that, that's also something where I think people kind of bristle at the idea of having committees and centralized review and all that kind of stuff. And I can, I can understand that. I've also bristled at that, but um I don't think it has to be a, a fixed thing forever, uh, but it does help to kind of bootstrap knowledge to have, you know, hey, these these seven people in the in the company know it really well. They're going to help you learn, and then six months later, you know, maybe there's one tech lead uh, in each team that really gets this stuff and kind of can push it down into their team, or an analytics engineer that really gets it can push it down into their team. Um, so. I think that's a pattern that I've seen with some success. And again, it's a similar pattern <laughs> with the, the REST API stuff that we, we did at, at LinkedIn as well, where over time you can kind of relax uh, some of the committee review stuff and, and trade off some agility uh, a bit as people understand what, what their requirements are. Yeah, slow down to speed up. And, and I think, um, I, I don't know if, if I just came up to it off the top of my head, but, uh, or if I've heard it somewhere, but like Sherpas versus gatekeepers, yeah. right? Like you, you, your governance team, you, you want to have a, a good centralized governance team, but that they're there to inform the teams on how to govern their data. Like yeah. Mohammed Sayed said that of you, you need informed governors. And if you're federating that governance, if you're decentralizing that governance, you need to teach your people how to govern. You need to teach people how to do these things and how to think about this stuff and that you're there as the backstop for I'm, I'm frustrated I can't move forward or I'm confused or I need help and that it's not you must, you know, you, you know, you cannot pass. You must, you must pass my test versus like someone going and saying, I'm going to guide you through this. You're having challenges. You come to me, I'm going to help you. 
And that that like that attitude shift around data, we just haven't had it because governance has had to be that that CYA, you know, cover your butt type yeah. of thing of protect your yourself, protect the the team and and that we're governing at the macro level instead of like, let's make sure that we can distribute that that governance so that we don't have to make all the decisions because most of the decisions are small scale decisions. Like, is this PII? Most teams understand if this is PII and they can. And so if you give them like a, a proper good masking uh, tooling that they can just mark it as PII and it just masks it automatically and that you go, okay, do I have to, oh, okay, this PII is really, really sensitive. So I want this to be request-based no matter what. There is no role-based access. Yeah. Every single person has to request it. Great. Boom. That's a checkbox. Right, like all of those things of reducing those frictions, so that you can make it so that every, but you can't then solve every challenge as well. It's that kind of eighty twenty rule, so it gets yeah. it gets difficult, and you can get bogged down. But I think it's it's important to to switch that. Yeah, I think also a- along with that, um, reducing the cost of a mistake. Right, so the with, with data, one of the problems with data is like it's at rest. So there's a lot of it, and so if there is a mistake, you have to go and like back process. Uh, you know, terabytes of data or whatever it is. Uh, simultaneously, on the security and compliance side, like the cost of exposing credit card numbers where they shouldn't be, is, it can be astronomically high in terms of you know brand damage and you know responsibility or customers and stuff. And so, <clears throat> reducing the uh, exposure, increasing your ability to detect those problems quickly, and then in- increasing the speed at which you can react and either mask the data that was leaked or delete it or redact it um, or transform it. So for example, moving away from PII to the data model stuff, if somebody decides to ship out a phone number and it's not the standard phone number data model and you know la- later after the fact, uh, you know, the committee or whoever discovers it and says, oh, hey, you, know, you should probably use this, this phone number data model we already have, making it so that it, it doesn't take a month and, you know, a, a manually deployed back processing, you know, back, uh, uh, bootstrap from the original data source to like reprocess all this stuff. And then a switch over, like making it so that it doesn't take all that. And it, it's a much simpler process to reprocess the data. Um, I think all that stuff helps it, and it increases agility and it decreases the amount of gatekeeping that has to happen it definitely shifts more towards Sherpa and independence. Um, and again, I just, I don't think we're there yet with the tooling that we're providing to our application engineers. I, I, I'm very bullish on it. We'll get there, but it's just, I think it's just going to take a long time because there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think this is where, I mean, Jamak has talked about her frustration around kind of where the tooling is. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think you, you mentioned Maroxa and, and Decodable. I mean, the two different approaches that I'm seeing are when I talked to Maroxa, they really were talking about putting something in front of the software engineers that's in the software engineer language. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of where I think a lot of people miss the boat on, on a lot of this stuff is trying to get data engineers. So like, you know, yeah. people like decodable, I'm not real bullish on them in, in the data mesh space because they're trying to put it in front of, the application engineers in data engineering language. And so you've got to flip it to how do how do workflows work for these people? And, and so 
it starts with people process and learning and you build small scale tooling and that it doesn't mean that you have to go out and buy everything. But you also, you can, we can start to see these vendors emerge that actually know how to do this stuff because it's not there right now. But like so much of this is process. So much of this is just like having the conversation and being aware and that we don't have to get to a place of sharing the most complicated, the most complex data right up front. We're building this muscle. Right. And, and those those are the, the things that I'm, I'm seeing kind of emerge. Yeah, I guess. So I would say, first off, full transparency here. I, I am uh, an investor in and involved with material. Uh, sorry, not materials. Uh, Maroxa. And I, you know, I've talked with Tavares a lot and everything. So uh, I definitely have that background with me the, the, on the decodable side. I am not super familiar with the product. They just kind of released it. I have talked with Eric and I mean, my discussion has been really positive with him and I feel like he and I are uh, very much on the same page. My, my take from the abstract and looking at what they've done is it's definitely a building block towards what we want. But I, I, I think um, no company right now really has the complete stack yet. Um, and I think Maroxa started much more from the CDC side of things with like stitching together, uh, you know, an ETL or an ELT style pipeline. I think Maroxa, or sorry, uh, Decodable is uh, starting much more from the stream streaming side of the fence. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to make a claim. You know, one side is better than the other, but you know, there are many, there are many paths up the mountain, and I don't think anyone is at the top of that mountain yet. So yeah, I'm, I'm just well, and, and my point is not even one company or another. It's, yeah. it's literally that the the big problem I'm seeing from the tooling perspective is for most companies is they're asking the data engineers to build the tooling because it's dealing with data Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have the software interface, right? It doesn't have the language. I, I had um, Jessica Kerr or Jessitron on uh, a few weeks back, um, you know, phenomenal episode. And she, you know, I said, Oh yeah. And, and, you know, we can't just expose DBT to these folks. And she goes, what's DBT? (laughs) And, and it's like, you know, in the data space, you say that and, and it's, you know, gasp, how could you not know that? But like in her world, she's yeah. somebody who's insanely well-informed and it, it just hasn't made a blip in, in their space yet because it's not in their language. And so like it, taking these, these approaches and, and we've kind of like DevOps for a while was very much not like the concept was just, Hey, developers, you now also have to do operations. And it was like, no, that's not at all it. And it's like, you have to be aware of this stuff and we have to provide you with the tooling to, to do this, but it has to be in your language, right? Like, and, and we can evolve your language somewhat, but we have to really approach that. And that's where, you know, I, I met with Devaris at, at Maroxa and he just, that, I didn't tell him that. That was what he was telling me. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah, I mean, okay, the, yeah. this, this guy gets this, that like the language of the tooling being in front of people, it, whether you're rolling your own or you're buying or anything like that, the data engineers want to put data engineering fun tooling in front of, in front of the application engineers. And if you're doing the embedded analytics engineer, that can work. Yeah. But I've seen a lot of people say the embedded analytics engineer ends up or that especially the embedded data engineer versus analytics engineer. And let's not get in that rat hole, but that they work alongside, not with, not as part of the team. And so your 
long-term understanding is, is very dependent on that one single person into that team being able to share their data instead of everyone on the team understands how to share their data. Where we should go with that, different for every organization, and I have no idea. Right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And again, that, that the embedded analytics engineer, I think it carries with it a lot of the same complexity that the embedded SRE carries to your point where, well, when that, if you only have one SRE embedded on the team, what happens when they go on vacation? Okay. Now you need two. And are they, are they handling all the SRE load versus uh, giving responsibility to the uh, application engineers and sort of it's your, your earlier comment acting more as, as shepherds and helping them along. Um, yeah. I think we're way early days in figuring out that, um, I, I agree that we need to meet application engineers where they are. And when I look at the DevOps stuff that happened with microservices and application engineers, I think we'll probably end up in sort of a similar spot, which is, you know, there's some percentage of stuff that gets exposed to the application engineers and they kind of understand it. And then uh, there's a, another chunk of stuff that is kind of, I won't say beyond them, but, but, far too complex for them to, to, to focus on. Um, and for that, we'll have, you know, either the embedded SREs or the centralized SRE org, uh, or DevOps org doing that work. So it'll probably be a spectrum. Um, so, you know, I don't know exactly how that looks. Um, but I, I, I feel like tooling is going to help a lot with that. Um, you know, all the stuff we were talking about earlier with the, uh, stream processing and semantic versioning and detection of schema changes, just telling the application engineers what's happening when they're changing schemas and stuff. Yeah. Like, like data drift, you know, data model drift is a thing in ML and we're not talking about it on data product side yet. And, and it's going to be coming because we want to be detecting these things because we want to, again, provide that information back to the application engineering team. But as you said, there, there's going to be the specialized tooling, right? Like you, you look at something or and specialized use cases and, and things like that, where it's very different this time. You look at the unfortunately named data mesh uh, implementation by Netflix. You know, they've got a specific thing of their Flink tooling called data mesh, and it's just a naming collision. But um and, you know, I think Netflix is also kind of looking at data mesh in general as, as a practice as well. But, um, I mean, somebody like Netflix has an insane amount of, of uh, use case. And so, like, you know, there's just so much data and so much, um, so much of a, a, a kind of very, very 0.1%, 0.01% type need that you have to specialize around that and that that's okay and that we have permission to do that, but that we have these things where we go, not every, you know, everything can kind of, or 80, 80, 90% can fit into this, this box. So let's, let's create this box and we'll make it extensible, which makes a box a terrible analogy, but (laughs) it's, it's, it's not a cookie cutter where we're cutting off all the context. It's that, you can have this has some room around it and you know 80% of the things fit into this and it doesn't necessarily fully fill up that box but that we've made it so that it's 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 fittable and that if there's something that goes outside of it we've got the the cardboard cutting tool to create the box for it and that we we work with that team and that there's that specialized but like 
the easy path button for a lot of, of these teams is, is important too. And that's, that's where I really think the tooling mm-hmm. can be so helpful because the one-offs, you're always going to be rolling your own, but yeah. like data catalogs and stuff right now, like it, it's not where it needs to be. Like data discovery is so difficult because there's just so many of the, the issues of what is this? How do I find it? You know, can I get my, metadata from XYZ system into ABC system, right? Like my data observability system traps my metadata. So I have 10 different panes of glass. So who's going to be looking at these 10 different panes of glass? Because, you know, multiple panes of glass is a pain in the behind. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I try and keep it clean just so I don't get an explicit tag, but, you know, the, the rhyming <laughs> scheme's there. But like, there's just so much here where I, I think... People, I, I want us to at least have the the process side around thinking about this stuff nailed in the next 24 months. And I don't think we'll have the tooling. I think it will evolve. But like, we should be able to to take what we've learned, like what you did in your article, taking what, what we've learned from DevOps and, and applying it to data mesh, applying it to data in general. But like, I don't know, it's, it just, it gets me excited and riled up, but it's also, I don't have the answers. <laughs> I, I mean, frankly, I think a lot of it is just going to be patience. I, I think we have all the building blocks. Uh, it's just really early and it takes, it actually takes quite a bit of time for not just the tech stack side of things, but the, the cultural organizational side of things to evolve and grow. Um, so I, I'm actually bullish on us getting there. I, I think 24 months sounds hyper optimistic to me though. <laughs> I'm more in the, you know, like uh, 60 month time frame, but <laughs> I, I don't think we'll get there from a, a tooling perspective and from a, a done perspective, but that we'll get there from a, hey, here, here are some, here are some like emerging practices, maybe yeah. not fully best practices, but like here are some, some standardized practices that people can apply or think about. Yeah. I, I can buy that. And I see, you know, if I look back to sort of the early um, CDC, you know, ELT data pipeline days, there were sort of canonical posts that were just fantastic popping up. So there's one from Yelp where they wrote, I think, you know, three, four, five blog posts describing how they did CDC. There was, um, of course, the iHeartLogs blog post from Jay at, at LinkedIn talking about, you know, uh, all the different ways that we use logs and data integration at, at WePay or at LinkedIn rather. Um, so I, I think there will probably, I, I could see over the next 24 months, uh, a few, you know, blog series popping up that were, are really great at describing concretely how one company implemented data product, data mesh type stuff. Um, I could see that, that, that sounds, uh, maybe not as hyper optimistic to me. So yeah. we'll get there. We, we've seen a few, uh, put out a couple of, of good things. Uh, Xavier Gumaro Regol had done that. And, and there, there've been a few, but it's, it's a lot of people are like, we haven't fully figured this out, so we can't share. And it's like, no, you like, we're going to be, everybody's going to be doing this stuff in the dark and just, you know, yeah. uh, if we don't have people sharing like, Hey, we're trying this thing and it didn't work. Or we tried this thing and we think it worked, but like we, we want some feedback and that, that people can feel like they don't have to be done to do that. So. Yeah. I'm also uh, hopeful that, uh, John book will help. So she just released her, her data mesh O'Reilly book. 
uh, which is, you know, obviously longer than a blog post or two. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, I had a chance to kind of uh, look it over and I, I think it's, it's great. So I think uh, that could help, you know, focus the industry a little bit as well. Yeah. Yeah, print print release was literally today, so I need to make a post about that in the Slack. About oh, right, perfect, perfect. <laughs> um, but well, uh, so we've covered a ton, ton, ton of stuff. But is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover, or any any points that you wanted to kind of sum up with? On no, that I, I think this was great. I, I hope my answers were coherent. I think sometimes they I get were steeped in this stuff. I forget to kind of take two steps back and <laughs> explain everything. But um, yeah, we we touched on everything I wanted to talk about. But that's kind of actually the the audience for this, right? It's not that it's not the people who are just like poking at data mesh. It's that the people who are actually trying to practice it and and are doing that there just isn't enough content for them. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do. Um, so uh, where can people find you? Is LinkedIn, Twitter, kind of the the best place for yeah. for people to do that? Yeah. So I think I'm most active on Twitter uh, at C Riccomini is my my Twitter handle. I'm also on LinkedIn. I also have a, a website that I keep relatively up to date with blog posts and stuff. And that is cnr.sh. Um, those are probably the three best places to find me. Okay. I'll, I'll drop links to those in the, in the show notes and, and as well, what do you want people kind of following up with you, uh, yeah, about, you um, know, as an engineer, an author and an investor? Are you, <laughs> like, what? Yeah, I guess I, on the, on the engineering front, I'm always interested, uh, and other people's thoughts on data mesh. Uh, you know, I've been uh, flamed on Twitter enough times to kind of grow some thicker skin on it. So any uh, follow up on the this podcast or any of my blog posts, I would love to hear about. On the author front, you know, we've got our book out, Dimitri and I, uh, The Missing Read Me, which is not at all really related to data. It's a, a guide for new software engineers um, that we're, we're happy to have out. Um, it's always interested in hearing people's feedback about that. And then, yeah, on the investor front, uh, always looking for interesting new data projects and stuff in the data space. So anybody wants to reach out, let me know what they're up to. I'm happy to hear about that as well. Okay. Well, Chris, this has been great. Thank you so much for spending the time and thanks everybody for listening. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Chris Riccamini, who's a software engineer, author, and investor. You can find Chris's contact information, including the link to the blog post that kind of led to this conversation, as well as his general website, his Twitter and his LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? 
We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Thank mm-hmm. you.